Good morning, everyone. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Healthy Chats. I'm Amy Braun, President and CEO of HealthCore, and since its founding in 2003, HealthCore has addressed health inequities in at-risk communities by educating and empowering teams, encouraging them to become change agents within their family, their school, and their neighborhood. Today, we will be discussing the need for diversity in medicine, specifically as it relates to inequity in healthcare for Black Americans and practices that can be taken to bridge that healthcare divide in the underserved communities. Black people in the US are more likely than white people to suffer from hypertension and heart disease and more likely to die at younger ages. They have accounted for a disproportionate share of COVID-19 cases, both hospitalizations and deaths. Research also tells us that black people are more likely to enjoy healthier lives if treated by black doctors, but there are not enough. Only 5% of our country's practicing physicians are black and that has to change. COVID-19 has ripped back the curtain on health inequities and several organizations have stepped up to address to try to mitigate them. HealthCore is trying to do this and we know that the Dr. Oz Show has also committed to making an effort to change this as well. Over the summer, we announced the Diversity in Medicine Scholarship Contest, open to any black student entering or attending medical school. We are excited to welcome the very first exceptional and inspirational winner with us today, Michelle Walls, a second year medical student at Michigan State. Congratulations and welcome, Michelle. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Also with us today is Sifu Carl Romain, a member of HealthCore Board of Directors. Sifu Romain is a martial arts world champion, a mentor and life coach who works with individuals to live out their dreams and win at life despite any adversity and challenges they may face. Today, though, I'd like to begin our conversation with our third guest and HealthCore Board of Advisor member, Dr. Judith Joseph. Dr. Joseph is a board-certified psychiatrist with additional expertise in child and adolescent psychiatry. She treats adults, children, and families in her New York practice. She has also been very vocal on the need for diversity in the medical profession and the impact the current lack of diversity has on patients of color. So Dr. Joseph, I'd love to just hear a little bit about your path to medicine. So thank you for having me and congratulations to Michelle. His story is so remarkable. Um, you know, I had a non-traditional path to medicine as well. I always wanted to help people. I grew up in a pastor's household. We were always out in the community. And I wanted to combine my love of science with helping people. So being a doctor just made perfect sense. And, you know, when I grew up, you know, I didn't really have a lot of the challenging things in high school. So high school was actually pretty easy for me. I graduated as a valedictorian and then went to Duke and had to study chemistry and biology. And I found things really challenging. And that's where really leaning on others and asking for help early on helped me. Um, I studied my way through, through college, went to med school at Columbia and initially wanted to study neuroscience and be a neuro, neurologist or a neurosurgeon. And then found that, you know, I really missed talking to people because hearing from other people about their struggles and how we can work as a team uh, to make their goals come true is really what it's about for me. And we were talking earlier about a, a, a need for diversity in medicine. Mental health is an area where there aren't a lot of people who are Black and or people of color. And I think that that further contributes to the stigma because we know from literature that people really sometimes feel more comfortable sharing their inner secrets, their pain with someone who they believe um, shares their journey. Even if it's, you know, you don't grow up in the same place, for a lot of people, 
sharing important details of painful past histories to someone who looks like them, a doctor that looks like them, can allow them to trust the treatment. And so it's so important to have diversity and cultural competency in medicine. And so I started off in the operating room. Um, I remember being an anesthesiology resident at Columbia working with Dr. Oz. And then, you know, being in the operating room is very important. It, it's really important to have black surgeons and black anesthesiologists as well. At the same time, I really miss talking to my patients. And so I pivoted into the field of psychiatry and never looked back. And I, I really want people to understand that, you know, it's okay to not be sure 100% of your journey along the way. As long as you listen to, you know, what makes you feel as if you're meeting those, you know, inner values, how do you stay true to yourself? And that's where you really find success and, and success in helping others. Absolutely. Well, as someone who was raised by a psychologist and a psychiatrist, I very much understand the value of needing to talk about your feelings and emotions. Michelle, you've mentioned to me in a previous conversation that your mother suffered from mental health issues. Dr. Joseph has mentioned there is a stigma in the Black community when it comes to mental health. Do you think that that stigma affected your mom in any way? Yes, definitely. And I'm so excited to be able to talk to Dr. Joseph about this. You know, I reconnected with my mom when I was 18 and aged out of foster care, and I hadn't known that she had a mental illness but it kind of turns out that they suspected she'd had it all along, which had to do with maybe why she couldn't take care of my siblings and I. And so, you know, over the years, as I've matured, I've gotten more close with her and I've kind of taken, you know, made a decision to actually be involved in her life. And it kind of is a lot, you know, I decided since I'm going to be a physician and I want to help other people, it would be a good idea to, you know, help my own family and my mom in particular. So she suffers from severe mental illness um, and it kind of impedes her ability to be functional. And so mm -hmm. it's like a, it's a, a everyday challenge, if you will, probably one of the most challenges I have in my life. And it's a little tough because I do struggle with the fact that I reconnected with her on my own and I didn't necessarily, um, I wasn't raised by her. So I still made the decision to go back and kind of look after her, despite the fact that I actually didn't spend most of my life with her. Michelle, that is truly incredible. I'm curious, if looking back on your experience, if you think having access to someone to speak with from a background similar to yours and your mother's could have helped you and her? Yes, definitely. You know, my family, I talked to them about it and they kind of say they, they always knew something was off with her, but they, you know, mental illness is not something that's often talked about in the Black community and communities in general. And so as it progressed, most people don't know how to handle it. So I know with myself being able to go to medical school, I'm more knowledgeable even than my family members who've been around her in some areas for many years. And so I try to use what I do know to kind of navigate what she's going through. Dr. Joseph, has your practice found ways to reduce the stigma of mental health in the Black community? So I think that education is so important. And there is a, a mistrust, right? Especially if, you know, you're talking about, okay, if you label me as having a mental illness, will you take my children away, right? I've seen cases like that um, throughout my training. And, you know, sometimes people will be more likely to open up to a counselor, a therapist, if they feel as if that counselor or therapist identifies with them, right? So if you're looking at someone who looks like you, then on an unconscious level, you're more likely to open up and share that you need help 
and talk about your symptoms and get the help because you on an unconscious level think that that person is less likely to use that information against you. And I've seen, and I don't, I'm not saying that this is Michelle's case or Michelle's mother's case. I've seen cases like this over and over again, where, where mothers, fathers will say, you know, I was afraid to put that on a paper because I didn't want my child taken from, from me. And, and that's where you give them information and education. Actually, people can't use these things against you, right? There's something called HIPAA. If you tell me something, I can't go ahead and tell everybody about it, right? I can only tell people that you give me permission to tell people, you know, so you can't, um, so you're, you're safe in the treatment. Whatever you tell me, it's safe, right? And so it's not going to be used against you. And that's where psychoeducation and trust really helps. And if you have a provider who educates you and who you trust, then you become a team. It, it's no longer doctor-patient. It's we're on this team together to help you achieve your goals. I have, I have a question for you, Dr. Joseph. Uh, you know, being in the Black community, people don't talk about mental health. When you made the decision to go into it as a specialty, were there a lot of people who were like, what, what are you talking about? Or like, were they, did they question that? Absolutely. I tell you, I grew up in a, in a very religious household where even now, you know, my, my dad and I would talk about mental illness and we would have these very like heated debates about religion and spirituality. It doesn't mm -hmm. have to be that way. It could be a combination, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, you can believe in your spiritual beliefs and also read about science and learn about how to take care of your body, right? Um, because, you know, when you're talking to someone who's very religious, well, didn't God create the world and all these, you know, medicines? So, like, we can incorporate this, and it doesn't have to be either or. It can be both. It can be an and, right? Um, and and I absolutely, I think that that's where cultural competency comes into play. When you when you work with a patient first, you're not going to be like telling them, okay, you should do this and this is that. And listen to what their explanation is, right? They may have their own belief system around what their symptoms are. And so you really have to listen and de develop that rapport with a patient so they trust you and tell you what's happening. And then, you know, you become the student. The, t the patient is teaching you about their experiences and how this illness has affected their lives. And then you work together to educate them about, okay, well, this is what we know from, from the research and the science from other people who have similar symptoms. And this is what we know works based on, you know, all of the um, studies that we've done. And so you work as a team, not you know, uh, talking down to someone because that's really not how you reach someone. You have to use empathy, you have to put yourself in their shoes um, in order for them to really feel as if you, know, you care. The pandemic has brought to light huge health inequities in our country, particularly in communities of color. How do you think a lack of diversity in medicine has really revealed itself during the pandemic? One thing I thought about from a student perspective is in our education, we do hear a lot about how chronic illnesses do affect the Black community more often. And I think sometimes we kind of get used to this is actually true, or it's kind of like a part of the curriculum and no one really thinks about it. And some people may even like to attribute it to different reasons. And so um, this happening during the pandemic kind of made it real where it's like we kind of deny that this is happening all the time because now it's kind of like um, emphasized at a high amount and it's like exponential. So it's like the same thing that's happening all the time at a more slow rate and now it's times 10. Absolutely. Dr. Joseph or, or Sifu, do you have any 
you know, kind of thoughts from your perspectives of what you've been seeing through your work? I mean, I'm, I'm in school for psychology, and I can tell you that out of the students that I've met, I'm the only black person in the class. So it's kind of interesting, um, that whole experience, right? And I grew up at a time where a lot of things weren't discussed outside of the home. So uh, mental health was one of those things in most black families, in, you know, at least in my generation when I was growing up, that uh, was never discussed. You know, problems were kept inside the home and it was it was in a, it was um, it was looked at in a way where, you know, if you had a mental issue, it was like an embarrassment almost to the family or they wouldn't accept it as a mental issue. They felt like you had other issues, you know, the other things, you know, you got it too easy. That's why you got a mental health issue, right? Something like that. So, uh, you know, it's 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 great that we're having these discussions that uh, more black people are entering the field. Um, and, you know, the pandemic has revealed a lot of things for a lot of people. Um, as a life coach, I see that, uh, you know, tremendously in relationships, especially um, what's being revealed and, and, and how people are struggling to deal with those things. Right. The idea of social distancing has created distance in many ways for a lot of people. And that that is troubling and very concerning as well. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that, you know, Michelle Obama put it best. She said a combination of social isolation, racial strife, mm -hmm. and not feeling as if, you know, people of color are really being you know, taken care of is putting a really heavy burden on her. She, she used the word like mild depression. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that I treat adults, children, teens, everyone is suffering. And especially my patients of color, my black patients, they're really suffering. And I'm seeing higher levels of depression, anxiety, poor sleep. And we know from pandemic research, because this is not the first pandemic, you know, other countries have been through pandemics. We know from the literature that there are vulnerable populations, the elderly people who have, you know, developmental challenges or cognitive challenges, frontline workers, they are going to be the most vulnerable. However, we've never seen this before, where there are these, this, this intense race, racial strife plus a pandemic. Mm -hmm. We got to add uh, people of color, black people to that vulnerable population list. And mm -hmm. so from what we know from the literature, when we get preventative health in, when we start, you know, screening early, right? And just we, we predict that these people are going to be more, more vulnerable, then we can get them evidence-based treatment early so that the outcome doesn't have to be as severe. And yes, we have to validate and acknowledge it's happening. And we have to also, you know, offer resources so that the downstream effects aren't lasting, aren't lingering as, as much. And so, yeah, to answer your question, I'm seeing it across the board, all ages. Um, Dr. Joseph, both you and Michelle touched on the idea of preventative measures that could be taken. Michelle, you mentioned that COVID has really pulled back the curtain on the fact that Black individuals are more susceptible to the pandemic due to some preventative health issues. And that's exactly why HealthCorp was founded. We really wanted to ensure that every child had access to preventative health information to curb the effects of chronic disease and to give their generation the opportunity to have a long and fulfilling life. We don't believe that the zip code that you're born into should dictate how long you live or even what the quality of that life should be. Additionally, we really want to make an impact on the future of healthcare. 55% of our coordinators have actually gone into the medical or health professional field. And we believe that culturally aware medical and health professionals 
can have a tremendous impact on the communities that they serve. Engaging with our coordinators and our students is one of the many reasons we recruited Dr. Joseph to our board of advisors. Dr. Joseph, I'm confident you will help us continue to provide effective and appropriate information to our core. To that end, I'd like you all to reflect possibly on the importance of role models and career models. The three of you are really incredible leaders who I'm learning from, again, through this conversation. Research suggests that children start to contemplate their future career aspirations around the third grade. So if you haven't seen a Black physician by the third grader, or even by the time you leave elementary school, how likely are you to believe in the possibility that you could become a doctor? Absolutely. Children look for examples in their parents, in their peers. Uh, they look in the media, you know, so it's important to have representation on television, on social media, in books, because they are, they're very impressionable. So really, um, we have to create this world where they don't just see themselves in one role, right, that they can do anything. But if you don't have that played out in, you know, the books that they're reading, or the shows they're watching, or even in the lessons that they're learning in school, then how are they going to internalize that? And yes, it's so important to have examples. I remember growing up, watching TV shows where there was a doctor on TV that was a, was a black doctor. It was really important um, to see that, oh, this is possible, you know? Um, and so I absolutely agree with that. Michelle, what was your inspiration to become a doctor? Um, I think I had a number of different um, inspirations throughout just, um, I kind of mentioned it before, but I always was an honor roll student. So I kind of had that smart kid thing going on. And so people would always kind of tell me that I could be these different things. But thinking more broadly for like all students, no matter where their, you know, their grades are at certain age levels, I think it's important, like Dr. Joseph was saying, like things in the media, um, I would say I had like bits and pieces of encouragement from different areas. Like one thing I could think about, it's kind of silly, but there was a show called The Game with Tia Maori, and she was a med student. So I think that was the only time I remember seeing a Black woman who was in medical school, you know, while I was coming up. And I actually really love that show. I'm like, I want to be like Melanie from the game. So <laughs> just things like that and knowing that um, kind of having that repetition in different areas, especially media because of how our um, world is with social media and just the information that where we get information. So books, you know, when you're in those K through um, eight grades and knowing that it's okay to try different paths, even things that are, could be things that can be considered like nerdy you know, it's okay. <laughs> I have a question for both Michelle and for Dr. Joseph. Being a Black doctor, how do you think that will impact other members in your family? As Because you guys will be role models for them. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I spoke earlier about my dad being like, you know, having these heated debates while I was in college about religion and spirituality and so forth. I think that when I decide, when I, Going into anesthesiology, um, and it was a very traditional, like you're in the operating room, you're in scrubs or masks, you're covered in like blood and blah, blah. <laughs> and I remember being like, I hate this. <laughs> but I was like, but this is a real doctor. And my parents were so proud. And then I was like, I can't do this anymore. And when I switched into psychiatry, the literal words were, but I thought you wanted to be a doctor. <laughs> like, that's not a real doctor. So... It's important to see, again, going back to how it's representation in the media is so important. 
when I see a black psychiatrist or a black counselor on TV, I'm like, yes, because some little kid somewhere, um, no matter what color they are, they're seeing that it is possible. This is what a doctor looks like. Mm-hmm. And when, when I was in residency in my psychiatry training program, it's a very, very, um, very like Freudian kind of program where you don't share too much about yourself. And, and yes, I understand the importance of that, but it's also important for us as, as black, black doctors to be very visible. Um, and so, you know, I'll, I'll, I started an Instagram account. I started posting educational things, you know, being very clear, I'm not giving you medical advice, but it's important to talk about these things to kind of decrease the stigma. And, you know, that was really risky because you, you can do that. And then people in your field will say, well, that's not very Freudian. Well, you know what? My community needs to see that there are people that look like me, you know, talking about mental health issues, destigmatizing things. And that was so valuable. Now the same people who are saying, oh, you probably shouldn't do that because it's not very like analytical are saying, can you help me do an Instagram account? Can you help me do that? So, you know, like you got to break down these walls. Yeah. So that our communities benefit, you know, you can't play by other people's rules because, you know, in our community, we really need to be visible because mm-hmm. it's not talked about enough. Depression is not talked about enough. Schizophrenia, bipolar, ADHD is not talked about enough. You know, why aren't kids who can't focus not getting them the proper resources? Because imagine, you know, the, the potential there if you actually had an evaluation and had supports, right? So we really do need to talk about this. We need people like Michelle. We need a lot more, uh, you know, younger doctors in medicine following in, in, in the footsteps, in, the, in our footsteps and, and talking about mental health um, issues, not because it's an illness, but because it's a part of your total body health. Michelle, so how do you think you becoming a doctor, your example, being a role model, how do you think that'll impact other people in your family? Um, I know that my family is really proud. I think sometimes they don't want to tell me, but Every now and then they'll be like, yeah, I was telling everyone or I'm like, I was mentioning to someone that my niece is a doctor, like every single family member. They're really proud. And like I said, I'm the first person in my family to be a doctor. Um, most of them are my my mom's family. You know, even though we went to foster care, a lot of them are like, you know, upstanding. They're like um, blue collar people and they work hard, but um, not many of them, you know, have gone on to um, get professional degrees and things like that. So it is definitely important. And I know for the community, it's important as well. Just when I do like volunteer clinical work and I have um, Black patients, they're always excited. And the patients always like to say, like, I'm happy to see you here. Michelle, you know, we were obviously selected as our first uh, recipient of the scholarship award. And we are so excited to be able to provide you with the $10,000. And, you know, one of the reasons was because you really have committed yourself to medicine and, and, and gone above and beyond, I, I would say, um, to make sure that you could get to medical schools. So I'd love if you could share with, with everyone here and our listeners a little bit about what that path was. Yes, sure. So like I mentioned, it was a um, non-traditional path. And um, I had a similar experience to Dr. Joseph. You know, when I was in, in high school, it was really easy. I didn't really do much to, I just showed up and I got A's. When I got to college, it was like a um, culture shock and everything was hard. So it took me a while to figure out how to navigate college. And um, ultimately I ended up taking years off to do grad work. And you know, that's how the non-traditional, there can be many different ways you can be a non-traditional student. It can be career changers and, and, or you can be someone who just has to get prerequisites, whatever it is that you need. And so in that experience, I took a few years off and I think it was really a great thing for me because I was able to discover myself 
and kind of discover what it is I truly am passionate about as it relates to medicine. And that's how I developed the interest in like lifestyle fitness and future lifestyle medicine. Speaking of that, I think what you're kind of, you kind of touched on a little bit, but a little bit more, what's, what was really your inspiration to get into the lifestyle medicine piece? I know that that's one of the things that we loved because of health course mission and wanting to make sure that we're providing individuals with education and nutritional information, right. To support, to help them make some better lifestyle decisions um, through education, as we've all talked about is so important. Um, but what was kind of that inspirational moment for you? Um, so I don't know if you guys heard of like freshman 15. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, <laughs> I ate in the calf. I lived on campus for the first two years. And the third year I moved off campus and I ate fast food and I like put on a whole lot of weight. And so I began to struggle with obesity personally. And also I have family history of diabetes. Um, it's very common. And then even my biological dad, he struggled with obesity. And I decided to kind of take charge of my health. And I began to exercise regularly and practice a nutritious diet. And I changed my life. You know, I lost all of the weight reversed. I think I had like high cholesterol. I worked at McDonald's in high school. I had high cholesterol from eating there every day. So I started to reverse those things. And um, when that happened, I felt better physically, but also inside because I kind of came into myself. And I wanted to share that, you know, with the world. And I wanted to share that as a future physician because I felt like there were gaps in healthcare in addressing those things. So I became a personal tra- a certified personal trainer and I started to do things at large. And then eventually that led to me um, finding the nonprofit Life Inc. Absolutely amazing, Michelle. Could you tell us a little bit more about your nonprofit? Um, so Life Inc. Um, stands for Lifestyle Fitness Empowerment. And it's basically for delivering practical, you know, healthy lifestyle habits to populations who may not have access to like education or personal trainers just to, to get them to know that there are simple, basic ways that they can practice a healthy lifestyle. It's just so incredible that you took your own experience and you put it into action and that you continue to, to put it into the, action every day is, is just really, you know, incredible. Michelle, when we spoke, I, I did want to share because I think sometimes people don't understand the hurdles that individuals have to go to pay for medical school, particularly if they come from a place of not an affluent background where they're really making it on their own. Um, and, and that, that, really can serve as a hurdle to individuals to, to becoming a doctor, which is something, obviously, one of those hurdles we want to try to remove. Um, so what were some of those hurdles, you know, that you faced and maybe some decisions that you had to make that were tough? Yeah, so one of the things that I struggled with was like the financial aspect, like you said, and I didn't have like parent support. So a lot of times I think trying to get into medical school involves a little a lot of different leadership activities, you know, your application, you have to have a minimum of 12 activities you're involved in. So that includes volunteer um, wow. experience and just any leadership. And so for me, I think I chose to sacrifice at times ability to be able to fulfill those requirements, not just for med school, but for myself too. You know, I did foster care advocacy um, with a, a program called NFYI, National Foster Youth Institute. And they would say, you know, we would have an annual um, shadow day program and it would be like in May for like three weeks, you know, and I would just, they would pay for it. But, you know, most jobs you have that aren't um, like full-time jobs with PTO, you can't just leave the job. <laughs> so I would have to make the decision to, okay, I want to do temp jobs or I'm going to resign from this job so that I can do this activity or even to do summer internships that only last for two months. You know, those kinds of things would disrupt my stability and mm-hmm. I would have to make the sacrifices to fulfill those requirements. And, 
I kind of went through this all through college, you know, just kind of sometimes struggling with having a place to go. And in, in undergrad, I could stay in school year round. If you're in school year round, you can stay in the dorms in the summer. And so when the year before medical school, I was no longer enrolled in college and I didn't yet have a job. So I found myself in the worst situation of homelessness out of all the years. And so I pretty much was couch surfing, spent some nights in my car and hotel, Airbnbs, lengthy stays in Airbnbs. And it was just a really rough period, it lasted about six months. That is, I mean, you know, I think you bring up a really interesting point about how oftentimes, you know, people who maybe aren't from what we would call a traditional family, right, or don't have those support systems have to make really tough decisions. And I mean, you were incredibly creative or thoughtful about it, right? Making sure, I think you said you, I think in previous conversations, you said you actually worked as dorm security, right? To make sure that you could, you know, and you're incredibly resourceful and independent. And I think that those opportunities are not always available to everybody or, or individuals may not know about that those op- opportunities and, and they may not have the support system or the, the know-how to go out and search for them. It wasn't the first time that I experienced um, home insecurity. And I think during undergrad, I could navigate it better because, you know, during Christmas breaks, dorms are supposed to be shut down. And so, you know, I would call someone in, in the financial aid office or someone in the dorms and say, you know, I don't really have anywhere to go for Christmas break. Is there a way I can just stay in my room? And that's how I discovered the dorm security where you could just stay in the dorms. You just got to go check, make sure all the doors are locked every few hours a day, but you got to stay there. And even sometimes they would have emergency funds to give students who, you know, were like myself or international students too. Michelle, you truly demonstrate focus and resilience. And clearly you have such a strong independence spirit. It's a true testament to to you. Michelle, you figured it out because you had to. It seems like it was a combination of desire and survival. Sifu Romain, I'm curious, what advice would you give to other young women and men like Michelle that are maybe in a similar situation or really any young man or woman simply needing guidance and inspiration today? I think she's, she's kind of already done that. Really just focus on what, what it is that you want more than the things that you don't want in your life. You know, um, there was a, a gentleman I met who's very successful who said to me one day, he says, always know your worst case scenario, but never take your eyes off the prize. Right. And, and I think if, if you're going to hit the target, that's what you need to do, you know, is keep your eyes on the prize, know what you're going for, know that every situation within every challenge, within every situation, there is an opportunity to uh, find a solution and succeed. And if you focus on solutions, you're going to get there. Um, I mean, hats off to you, Michelle, like your determination, your persistence, uh, everything you've been through, the obstacles you've overcome. I mean, you're, you're a tremendous role model for many people in many ways. And I think you're going to make a, a huge difference as you continue uh, down this path. So I'm, I'm proud of you. I mean, just beyond proud. Thank you. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you, Sifu Romain. That's a really interesting report. I just think of your worst case scenario, but always have your eyes on the prize. But if I'm honest, to me, that feels like it would create a lot of anxiety, you know, constantly making sure that you're thinking about your worst case scenario. In Michelle's case, uh, worst case scenario was homelessness. And that's very, very, very scary. And, you know, a lot of it, very anxiety provoking. So I guess, how does one manage that anxiety? You know, what are some techniques that we can give people? Because yes, you absolutely have to be aware of the worst case scenario while still being forward thinking and, you know, keeping your eyes on that prize. Yeah, I I say that because you don't want to be in denial, right? You have to know what's going on in the reality of your life. I mean, when you're homeless, there's 
you can't deny it, right? You're very aware of, okay, this is my situation. However, you need to make sure that your mindset is one that says, okay, I I need to do something about this. What can I do, right? Don't let what you can do affect what you will do. So what can I do? What will I do about this? How do I get from where I am to where I want to be? And as long as you're seeking out solutions, you'll eventually get there, right? The journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, right? So as long as you're constantly seeking solutions, they're going to show up. And like she said, she started talking to people. She was open and asking for advice. And she found out, oh, I can stay in the dorms, right? If she had kept it to herself, if she had done that thing, you know, like we were talking about before where I'll keep it to myself, you know, she would have never found the answer that she was seeking or looking for. So, you know, talk to people, get advice, you know, keep moving forward, keep keep thinking about what it is that you actually want, keep it in the forefront of your mind. And I think that because she was in one of her worst case scenarios, that's probably why you brought it up. But at the same time, it's important for her to talk about that because mm-hmm. I'm sure she's heard the conversation time and time again in medical school where other students will say, oh, you must have, you know, gotten in because you were Black you know what, (laughs) they need to hear stories like this because people have a misconception that it's easier to become a doctor because you're Black. It's actually the opposite. And I just had this conversation with some of my colleagues who are, you know, in charge of choosing people for residencies. It's so hard to find a Black doctor. You have to, like, they, they go through so many struggles. There's, like, the, you know, systemic racism. There are all these um, things that hurdles that other people don't have to go through because the support were not there. And so it's actually harder for us. And I think her story is beautiful because she talks about, you know, being in a worst case scenario, pulling out all of her tips and her skills and, mm-hmm. and trying to problem solve and then realizing, you know, maybe I should share you know, what I'm going through and, and ask for help. Maybe there's another way of going about this that it doesn't have to be this difficult. I don't have to do it alone. And she did. And that, that's where I think a lot of young black doctors struggle because they don't want to talk about things that um, may be embarrassing or, or cause shame. And it's actually the opposite. When you share your struggle, you, it's, a, it's a burden that's lifted. You get, you get the help that you need. You get the support and the resources. And you also inspire others. Dr. Joseph shared that it's, it's a harder road for some black doctors in medical school. Michelle, do you have anything to share about your journey this far? Um, sometimes it's difficult um, just feeling heard for sometimes and just I have to speak a little louder or when I walk in a room there's sometimes this shift where it's like okay am I going to just blend in or am I going to try to take charge and, and speak and sometimes I have to do that multiple times before I'm received and so that can be just challenging from on a day-to-day um, and just take a lot of energy but I'm, I'm up for the challenge and things are going well Dr. Joseph, do you want to share if there was something similar or your own kind of experience in going through medical school as a Black woman? Sure. I mean, there's the, what, you, what you're describing, the, the microaggressions, right? When you walk in a room and suddenly things shift. No one's outwardly being, you know, biased towards you, but just in that change in behavior, that, that tone in the room, it's, it hurts. And again, I'll, I'll bring it back to that uh, misconception that things are easier. It's actually very difficult. And, you know, imagine that you're like the, the only uh, person of color in the room. And there are the little study groups that have formed way before you even knew 
Um, and they're, you know, helping each other. They're working as a team and you are on your own, right? That is very difficult. And that's, that's one of the resources. It may not be financial, but it is a huge resource, right? That information, those shortcuts, those tips, those are resources that, that allows other people to multitask a lot easier than you when you are on your own. Um, and so that's why Michelle's story is just, it needs to be celebrated and we need to talk about stories like hers a lot more often and have scholarships like this because every little bit of support helps and it's needed because we don't, we don't, we have a harder time. Thank you both so much for sharing with us. Michelle, you are such an inspiration and an incredible role model. What advice would the three of you give to a black high school student who was thinking about a career in medicine? You know, if it's something that you want to do, go for it and find um, some role models for yourself. You know, the, where, whatever you want to do in life, you can always find a role model to look towards or look, you know, um, guide you, so to speak. You know, if you if you um, do enough research, you can find somebody who's willing to help that you could speak to and say, hey, what is it like? Um you know, being on a podcast and, and uh, having resources like that, you can reach out to some of the people that are guests on the podcast. I'm sure if somebody reached out to Michelle, she'd be more than willing to speak to them. And I think if we continue to promote um, the things that we're doing in our communities to help others, you know, just by sharing our stories, uh, that that'll make a difference for them to, you know, do the same as they continue and help, help ease the struggle for them. You know, knowing that somebody came before you, that somebody accomplished it sometimes is all the inspiration that you need. Right. And sometimes it's great to be able to reach out and say, Hey, how did you do that? Tell me the steps. What did you go through? Michelle? I would say you know, something that people in high school or, or anyone considering becoming a physician in the future should not take no for an answer. And like there might be lots of discouraging people or just situations along the way. And it comes in subtle forms. You know, sometimes it's, oh, why don't you consider doing this career? You know, and it's not an outright, you shouldn't become a doctor. So you kind of got to learn to not um, take no for an answer and realize that it won't be always be like a peachy road and you'll have to pick yourself up sometimes. And I definitely think it's important to find mentors and a good way, I believe in the cold call where you just reach out to people and sometimes you'll know and sometimes you'll find someone and you'll say, I really resonate with this person and you'll reach out to them and it doesn't pick up the way you would expect, but you have to say, okay, maybe this wasn't the mentor for me and know that someone will embrace you and they will connect with you and that person could give you lots of help along the way. Dr. Joseph, is there anything you wanted to add for advice? I agree with both of them. Mentorship is so important because why reinvent the wheel? Ask someone who's done it. How, what were their mistakes? How did they do this? And absolutely never take no for an answer, ever. <laughs> There's gotta be a way, right? Um, I, will, I, will, I will add a third one, take risks. I think a lot of times, you know, we're afraid to take risks because we're like, well, we're one of the few, so we got to, you know, play it safe. No, 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 no. It's the opposite. Take risks because the rewards will be high. Um, and, and you've made it this far, so really you can do it. Absolutely. We definitely agree with you. One of the things we're working on right now is a town hall for our broader health core family, which includes our school communities. 
We will bring together a diverse panel of experts in the medical field to provide real-time information on the vaccine. This will be an opportunity for people to ask questions directly to the experts and really gain a personal understanding of what will be available. We started our conversation today talking about the importance of education, and education on the vaccine is the first step in our collective healing. Well, thank you all for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time to discuss this. And Michelle, I know we've said it on the call multiple times, but congratulations. I know I told you when I spoke with you last week, I just think you are phenomenal. You are so inspiring. I'm just so excited because I am just think about future generations and they're just going to be so lucky to get you as a doctor. So excited to be um, a part of this. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. And just another note, we actually are doing another round of the scholarship. So we were so impressed with Michelle and we feel that there's such a need um, to make sure that we are helping black doctors in our communities that we will be awarding another scholarship in the upcoming days. So if you are a black doctor or you know a black doctor who is deserving of uh, the $10,000 scholarship award, please head to healthcore.org. The link to the application is there. Um, And if you'd like to contribute to help us support more black doctors, in, you know, in communities across the country, please, uh, please, you can do it at our site as well. And the actual link will be in the description of the podcast. Michelle, Dr. Joseph, Sifu, thank you so much for joining us, really educating all of us today. I deeply appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Back, Michelle. <laughs>